0: you would take your Bible this morning and turn with me to the book of Numbers. We're in chapter 13, Numbers chapter 13, if you will turn there. don't have anyone that is going to read scripture for us this morning because what we're going to do together is walk through two two chapters of the book of Numbers together, reading and and making application, and at the end of our time together this morning, I want to ask you uh, nine questions that are application questions for your own life. So if you have uh, a pad or a bulletin or a piece of paper and a pen, I want to ask you, if you would, just prepare to... Write those down. This story in the book of Numbers has been uh, one of those most intriguing stories to me since I was a young boy reading through the Bible and hearing the stories of the text of Scripture. This one probably intrigued me as much as any other story in the Old Testament. The spies going into the land that God had said, I've given you this land and now I want you to see it. Go, Go look at it and then go take it. And so Israel sends these spies into the land to come back and report to them to to prepare them to go into the land that God had given the people of Israel. If you're new with us this morning, we're in the midst of a study of the book of Numbers, which is a, a, a volume in a larger work called the Pentateuch. The first five books of your Bible of the Old Testament are, are the books of Moses, the book that Jesus would call the law. This is the, the Torah, if you will, in the Old Testament. So we studied for some years ago through Genesis and then we got into Exodus and here recently we've done Leviticus and come right into Numbers to study this story of how God created the world and how then He is going to bring redemption because how sin entered the world and how we need forgiveness and we need restoration. We need someone to give us a hope and God does that. And so we see the gospel even here. And I want you to see it today in Numbers chapter 13. As we pick up in our text, the people of Israel have been delivered from Egypt God has already accomplished their redemption. They are on their way to the promised land, except Numbers has this story of them in the in-between time. They're in the wilderness, or your text may say the desert. It is certainly a desert land, but some translations call it wilderness, some call it desert. Same place, it's a place of... of. Um, that you would not want to live. It's a place that you would just want to travel through from Egypt to this land of plenty, to what you would know in geography today as what was the Fertile Crescent, as a wonderfully abundant land. And as we pick up the story, God has brought them out of Egypt as a ragtag group, a a, a people that have grown in Egypt to large numbers, and God has ordered them, He has organize them. The warriors have been counted and put in order. The camp has been in order. Here is where you're going to camp. Here is how you march out. Here is how you're going to get into the land. They have built and put together the tabernacle in the middle of the camp where they meet with God, where they worship the God who brought them out of Egypt, who has redeemed them. And so they come and worship and bow down to Him there. They have set out now from their first camping spot at Sinai into the wilderness on what could be about a 14-day journey to the promised land. We looked and saw how they set out in chapter 10 triumphantly. God had organized them ready to go. Let's go take the land. And immediately in chapters 11 and 12, there are rebellions that happen. I told you there were three rebellions and so we saw them in 11 and 12 now. In chapter 13, we're going to look at what would be perhaps the greatest rebellion. In chapter 11, we saw the pattern of rebellion. It is that the people complain and rebel against God. God brings His mercy, but He also brings His judgment. Moses, leadership, those that are leading the people intercede. God gives mercy, but there are still consequences of rebellion. And so then God forgives and brings restoration even there. Today, we see the rebellion in chapter 13. And just like we did in chapter 11, three days out of Egypt, the people complain. Three days out of Sinai, the people complain. As soon as they get out of Sinai and complain and God gives them water, they still complain and God sends a plague. Three days out of Sinai, they complain. God meets that that uh, complaint with judgment and mercy, and then they go on to the promised land, and they complain again about the food that they were going to eat. We spent the most time last week there. I just want you to see how from Egypt to Sinai, the same people are hard-hearted, rebellious people, and now they've seen God at Sinai. They have uh, experienced His mercy. They have seen how they can worship Him, and yet they set out again to the promised land, and they're still hard-hearted and rebellious. And they still need God's mercy even here. And so, just like when they get to Sinai and they turn against God and they worship this golden calf today, they're going to turn against God in a a dramatic way. And so I want us to look at it together. They were camped. If you look at chapter 12, verse 16, they were camped in the wilderness of Paran. This is the staging ground. This is just south of What was the promised land? What God said, I'm going to give to Abraham and his descendants. This is just south of that. So they're ready to go in and take the land. They're there, ready to go in on the southern border of the promised land. And let's look at what happens. Read with me, if you will. Beginning in chapter 13, we'll read together verses 1 through 3. And then we're going to skip down to verse 17 and pick up our reading. Numbers chapter 13, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the people of Israel, Verses 4 through 16 is going to name them. I'm not going to uh, spend my time mispronouncing all of the names, but he's going to name uh, leaders of 12 of the 12 tribes. Literally, it's really only 11 tribes. You remember Joseph had two sons, and they. They would call both of his sons in this list, and Levi is not included. So of the 12 tribes, there's not a leader from the Levites because they have been set apart to guard and, and do the temple work. So you still have 12 tribes, you just have two from Joseph's line. And certainly this reflects Jacob's blessing of Joseph's sons, both Ephraim and Manasseh. Noteworthy in the text that you'll see in just a moment are two. One is Caleb from the, from the tribe of Judah. And one is Joshua, although in your list you're going to read it as Hoshea, But you'll see in verse 16 that Moses renames him as Joshua. And Joshua is from the tribe of Ephraim. Now it's of note before we pick up that Caleb from Judah and Joshua from Ephraim are representing the two tribes that become the dominant tribes in the nation of Israel. Ephraim will become the dominant tribe in the northern kingdom when they split. Judah becomes the only tribe that survives and is the tribe that is dominant in the southern kingdom. And so their leadership here is going to have consequences that goes on for generations and generations in the nation of Israel. So that will be part of our application when we get to the end. Your actions, sir, ma'am, have more consequences than just you. If I could tell you how many times that people have said, just leave me alone, this is just my sin, it doesn't have anything to do with you, leave me alone, and I want to scream at them, read the Bible. Your actions affect not only you, they affect your children, they affect your grandchildren, they affect your great-grandchildren. You are acting in a way, they affect your church, they affect generations of people in the way that you and I Live for our God. So pick up in verse 17 after the names of all of these 12. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, here's his instructions, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country. See what the land is, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds. And Whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. and So Moses sends them out to spy out the land. Now it's significant here when you and I get to Deuteronomy chapter 1 in just a couple of years hopefully. We're not going straight in there from numbers, so calm down. But in a couple of years I hope to come back to Deuteronomy when we get there, we're going to read Moses on account of what happens here. The reason I bring it up is you're going to find two things there that are really significant to us for today. Number one, the idea to send spies into the camp was actually the people's idea. Moses said that it wasn't here you say God says to Moses and Moses says to the people. Well, the people say, can't we send some spies to spy out the land? And Moses takes it to God, and God thinks it's a good idea. He says, okay, send the spies. And so Moses sends them. This is a people's idea. Let's send some spies. Let's don't just go up there. Let's, let's send some people to check it out first. All right? So secondly, and perhaps more importantly, Moses in, in Deuteronomy chapter 1 points back to this incident, the one where he sends them Sends spies into the land as at least partially responsible or the partial responsibility for his not being able to enter the land. So, just so I can give you a foreshadowing, Moses is not going into the land of promise. You know that there's a reason in, in Numbers 20 and 21, we're going to deal with it where Moses strikes the rock when God told him to touch the rock, and that was an act of disbelief. But Moses points back here and says, this was some lack of faith on my part too. So he points to the people, and he points to himself and says, even the fact that we would just not go and take the land God gave us was somewhat of a faithlessness. And certainly the people are going to be faithless as we see them in just a moment. Now, notice gives them four. Excuse me, Moses gives them four tasks I want you to know about in chapters 13, 17, and following. Note, they're to go up. That's significant. As you read the text, is why I want you to read the Bible out loud, as you read it, you're going to hear over and over, go up, go up, go up, and then you're going to hear, go down. And so that's going to be really significant. Moses says, go up into the land. Going up in the Old Testament is always a good thing. Amen? Even in our culture, going up, I mean, so take normal culture. Nobody wants to go down when they die, right? This is culture everywhere. Everybody wants to go up. This is where we get it. Moses says, go up into the land. This is the land I'm giving you. Go up and you'll get there. So then report on the land. Is it good or bad land? What's it look like? What's it like? And then report on the cities. How are the people in it? Are they camps or strongholds? Are they strong people or weak people? And then bring back fruit. Four instructions. Four instructions. Go up to the land. Report on the land. Report on the cities. And bring back fruit. And so they went up in verse 21. They spied out the land and then they come back at the end, verse 25, at the end of 40 days. They come back and they return. They come to Moses and Aaron. They're still in the wilderness of Paran. They've moved just a little bit from the east to the west. But they find them there at Kadesh in verse 26. And they brought back, to them, brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Now pick up in verse 27. And I want to read there for just a moment. It's a summary report. And from here through the beginning of chapter 14, or actually most of the way through, at least verse 19 of chapter 14, what we're going to find is, what did the spies see in the land? Land of promise. God said, go up. Moses says, let's send these spies. So you go send these spies. And then you come back and report. Now we're going to get the report. Here's the summary. This is normal in ancient writing. The summary beginning in verse 27. They told Moses, quoting it, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Now, I skipped reading this, but let me just say to you very quickly. When they get to the land, they find a wonderful land where Anak and his descendants are living. It names three of his sons there in the verses that we skipped in verses 18 and following. But they find grapes there that are so big that they cut off one vine That has one cluster of grapes. As a matter of fact, they call it, you look back in verse 24, they call it the Valley of Eshkol, which just simply means the Valley of Clusters. They've cut off one vine with such a cluster of grapes on it that they hang it over a pole and carry it between two of their shoulders. All right, so this is not something you just put in a grocery bag and put it on your sack. They're carrying this on a pole between two of their shoulders back. to the land of Canaan, or excuse me, to the land of the wilderness to tell them this is the fruit. So they show them this. Look at this fruit. Unbelievable. They see this. And they say, we came to the land. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Pick up in verse 28. However, don't you always dread those words? However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. This is a a, a large people. So I could read you through and take you through the genealogies. You know the people of Anak and the Nephilim that we're fixing to read about primarily because you've heard of David and Goliath. So the Anakites end up in Gath and you know that Goliath is from Gath. These are large people. So they're seeing and they say, they're giants in the land. These are, these are larger people than we are. So they say, however, these people are there. And then they go, the Amalekites dwell in the land and the Negev, the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the land in the hill country. So you should know now by reading scripture, when you get all these tights people, that it's people that are mostly enemies of God. So you get to the Jebusites, the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Amorites. They're all going to be enemies of the people of God. They dwell in the land. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. And so the summary report, it's awesome. But their cities are really big. They're really fortified. And they're giant people there. Apparently it caused an uproar. Because in verse 30, Caleb quiets the people before Moses and here's what Caleb, who's one of the spies, says to them. Here's his report. So you get the summary report. Now Caleb's going to say, I want to speak. Look at it, verse 30. Let us go up at once and occupy it. For we are able, we are well able to overcome it. And the men who had gone up with him said, Ho, ho, ho hold on. We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land. Yeah, we know that you saw these grapes here but it's not all you know it's not all that great i mean it's the land is not it's nothing like where we were in egypt now you might think they're not saying that but that's what they're saying it's nothing like where we were before we got into this wilderness wow they just changed stories you ever heard a politician change stories you got 10 spies now they're trying to influence the people they're changing their stories, so they bring a bad report of the land they had spied out. I'm quoted again in verse 32. The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. Man, this got really bad really quick, didn't it? This is a great land flowing with milk and honey. Now the land devours people who live there. Do you see the, the the sarcasm or the hyperbole that the people are using? And all the people that we saw in it of a great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. Look at the last phrase of verse 33, because this is a phrase that my Old Testament prof coined, and I've used it since I entered seminary probably, I don't know, we won't worry about how many years ago it was. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Now today, before you got out of here, I want you to know one thing, and that is, what is the grasshopper complex, and do I have it? God promised them the land of Canaan. He promised it to Abraham and he promised it to the people here. And he said, Moses, go up. And they said, let's send some spies in the land. And so they send some spies in the land. They come back and say, it's an awesome land. But their cities are fortified and their people are big. And I just don't know that we can take it. Let me tell you something. God never told you to take it. He said, I'm giving it to you. Did you hear when I read it a while ago? God said, this is the land which I'm giving you. He didn't say, you have to do everything. He said, I've done it. I will give it to you. You go claim it. And they said, we can't do it. Caleb says, we're well able to do it. And they said, oh, no, we're not. This land devours people. There are giants there. As a matter of fact, when we got there, we thought that we were grasshoppers looking up at these giants. And they looked down at us, and they too thought we were grasshoppers in their sight. How many times does the people of God, does the church of Jesus Christ look at the world around them and say, we can't do that. And our God says, go make disciples. Oh, but Jesus, I can't speak at my work. Do you know what they'll do to me if I talk about Jesus? Do you know what they'll do to me if I, if I tell people who I am and that, that I'm crazy over, over a, a, a Hebrew who died and rose again? Do you know what people think about me? And Jesus says, look, I did it. You just make disciples. And the church so often says, we're like grasshoppers to them. Do you know how much, in, how much power and authority and influence the world has? We're like grasshoppers to them. We, we can't do what they can do. And God says, I'm not asking you to. I'll do it. You just be faithful. Did you hear me? I'll do it. You just be faithful. Grasshopper complex, we look around at the world around us and we think we can't live for God. I can't do my business that way i I've, I can't tell you over the last couple of years how many times how many different professions that I've been in contact with and and been told everybody in that profession lies to you you can't be in that profession without being a liar, you can't do business without cheating somewhere or you'll never make it. you can't do this without some kind of sin, and God says. No, you can't. We think, we can't do anything without being like the world. God says, yeah, I've called you to be faithful. Trust me. I'm taking you to the land. I have given it to you. Remember, this is the God that owns everything. He spoke and it was made. And he says, I'm giving it to you. And we say, God, we can't take that. We can't do that. God, could you, could you make this small people so great in the world? Could you give this small people a country, a land that is flowing with milk and honey? Could you give this small people influence? Could you, through this small people, bring someone who would bless the nations? Yes. Just trust me. I've done it. It's nothing for God. Do you agree with me? It's nothing for God to give the people of Israel this land. It's nothing. Snap his fingers this time. Doesn't even have to snap. He speaks it. And worlds come into existence. The stars are created when God speaks. And yet we don't trust him. We look around and we think. God, those people that we're in competition with, that are of other religions, and they're they're vying for our nation, and they're vying for our world, and they're they're so big compared to us, and so we just are quiet, and we retreat, we say, God, we can't do it, we can't live for you in the midst of this. So just note as we go through verse fourteen and follow, chapter fourteen and following, probably some of the saddest lines in this entire book. Of the Pentateuch. They did exactly what they were doing. We went up. We brought the fruit. The land is rich. The cities are strong and fortified. The people are strong. Caleb gives his minority report. We can well take it. And then there's the majority report. We can't go up. Notice what they said. We cannot go up. We cannot overcome. We are like grasshoppers. Now go down to chapter 14. The people who had seen God's miraculous work on their behalf. Right? Did they perform the ten plagues in Egypt? Did they rescue themselves from Pharaoh or the sea? Did they provide their own water in the desert? Did they provide their own food in the desert? The answer is no. And yet listen to what they say. Chapter 14. All the congregation raised a loud cry. The people wept that night. And the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Listen to this. Can you believe this? We look at this church and we think, how could they do this? And yet you and I say some of the same things they're getting ready to say. And it's the saddest words I could ever hear in a church. But listen to what they say in this context. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Church, I don't know that there's any sadder statement in the entire Old Testament than that. Do you remember Egypt? They clearly don't. They were in bondage. They were slaves and God delivered them, and now they're saying, God, I wish that we could go back to before I knew You. I wish You had never delivered me from sin and slavery and bondage, because my life then was better than what I think my life is going to be in the next two days. Mind you, It's not better than it is today. It's better than what I think it's going to be tomorrow when I actually obey You. Right? They're not saying, God, it's better then than it is now. It's better then than it's going to be when we go do what You've told us to do. God, lostness, my rebellion against You before I was saved was better than if I obey You now. Do you hear that? Do you identify with that? Because I think that you and I probably look at these people and think, how could they say that? And yet we live functionally in the same way when we go back to the same sins over and over and we say, God, I don't have the faith to obey you. I don't think you can bless my life that much. I don't think that you can do that. I don't think that our church can make that big of an impact in the kingdom. God can. this group, this small group and impact lostness in the entire world throughout the nations but it's going to be dependent on our faith, not His strength. Will we obey Him? Or in the wilderness will it be that you and I look and say, God, you can't do that. I would rather go back to lostness And go forward in obedience. Because going forward in obedience is scary. We might die. Do you know what happens when they go in? you know what happens in some of the battles? Some are going to die. If they would have gone up, some might die. Let me tell you something. It's better for me, for you, to die on our way into the promised land on this life than to go back to bondage. And they're so blinded that they'd rather go back to bondage than to give it all to get to the promised land. How many of us have this grasshopper complex? It gets worse. But before it gets worse, we learn from Moses and Aaron. Look at verse 5. Moses and Aaron do what? They pray. They fall on their face before God and pray. That's what good leaders do. They pray. Joshua and Caleb, verse 6, they tear their clothes in mourning before the people. I can't believe that you guys don't trust God enough for us to go forward. And so Joshua then speaks. Caleb's already spoken. Now verse 7, Joshua's going to speak. And here's what he says in verse 7. The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. It actually says it twice. It's exceedingly, exceedingly good in the Hebrew. If the Lord delights in us, and how could you question whether He does or not, right? Here's what He's done for us. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and He will give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Joshua is trying to re- Focus the people. It's not our battle. It's His battle. We didn't promise this land for ourselves. Moses didn't promise this land for us. God promised it. And if God promised it, then He will give it. He'll bring us in. He'll give it to us. Only, verse 9, do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Now, for those of you who like leaders that use some good sarcasm, Joshua's just used it they bread. Bread is nothing. Bread is common. This is nothing for us. They're bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. So here's the climax of his speech. Do not fear them. Here's the implication. You're either going to fear them or you're going to fear God. If you fear God, you will know that God's given it to us. We'll go up. We'll trust Him. He'll give us the land. It's a good land. If you fear them, you won't have faith in God. You won't go up. Listen, I've taught you this a hundred times from this pulpit. There is an inverse proportionality between your faith and your fear. As your faith goes up, your fear of the world and of any other God goes down. As your fear of the world and what others think about you, your faith, as, as your fear goes up, your faith goes down. So when one goes up, The other one goes down. If you fear others, you will not trust God. If you trust God, you will not fear others. And this is what he's saying. Do not fear them. They're not your battle. God will give them. Verse 10, all the congregation said, let's stone them. These guys have lost their minds. Let's stone them. God intervenes. The glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. So God comes and He shows up And the Lord says to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long? Here's the key. How long will they not believe me? Church, I think that if you and I could get that, that driven into our hearts, we could make application and leave. How long will you not believe me? Believe what? Believe that I've accomplished your redemption and I've got your life in my hand right now. How many of us when we face the reality of our day, of our lives, of our struggles, of our relationships, of our jobs, we come back to, we might know how to, how to answer the preacher who asks us, do you believe in Jesus? Oh yeah. But functionally we live our days as if we don't believe at all. Because God said, I've got your life. Trust me. If you'll give it to me, I'm taking you to the promised land. I'm not promising you it's going to be easy on the way. As a matter of fact, it's desert. You're going to have to trust me to provide your water. You're going to have to trust me to provide your food. But trust me, where we're going is much better than where you've been. And it's much better than where you are. Trust me. Do my will. I'm bringing you into the land. I'm bringing you. I want you to invite others with you on the way, Hobab. Remember, I want you to take others with you. But trust me, I'm taking you into this land. And yet we come to the place where we put our eyes, not on God, but on what's there. God, I can't do that. God, I, I can't do something that radical in my life. I can't give that up. I can't take that step. I can't do without that. I can't, I can't, I can't, and why? Because we fear Other things more than we fear God. And our faith in God goes down as our fear of other things goes up. And we come to this place and God says, how long will you despise me? We don't despise you, God. Oh no, we do. Because we don't believe you. Oh no, we believe in you. We believe that Jesus gave us a... We believe in this redemption that Jesus gives us a ticket to heaven. But do we believe Him in the everyday events of our lives? What about it, sir? What about it with your business, your marriage, your conversation, your friendships? What about it, ma'am? What about it with your relationships, your thought life? How about it? Do we believe him? Verse 12 So I'm going to strike them. This is God speaking. I'm going to strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them and I'll make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Moses intervenes again. This is what happens. Moses intercedes. Here's the the normal pattern. Moses begs God not to do it. I want you to read it, but here's what he says. God, you have put your name on this people. If you don't forgive and bring them into the land, then all the world, all the nations, Egypt is going to look and they're going to say, God, the God that they said, you God, were not powerful enough to bring them. So God, spare them. Forgive them. Don't Hold it against them. Please pardon their iniquity. Verse 20. So the Lord says to Moses' prayer, look at this. We're going to walk through the rest of this chapter quickly. The Lord says in verse 20 of chapter 14, I have pardoned according to your word. Moses intercedes. God pardons. Here's one of the things I want you to know. God's forgiveness does not always mean removal of consequences. You need to know that in your own life. It's a principle that you need to store away and know in your life. God's forgiveness does not always mean removal of consequences. There are three judgments that God gives. Walk through them quickly. Verse 21, Truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. None of those twenty years and up that we numbered in Numbers chapter one, not one of them will enter the land with two exceptions. Caleb, Joshua. Why? Because they had faith. They will go in. No one else will. Judgment number two, verse 26. The Lord spoke again to Moses and Aaron, saying, This, How long shall this weak congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me, say to them, as I live declares the Lord what you have said in my hearing I will do your dead body shall fall in this wilderness and all of your number and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old upward who have grumbled against me no one shall come to the land you said it would be better for us to die in this land granted you're going to die in the wilderness judgment number 1 nobody's going in judgment number 2 you're going to die right here judgment number 3 Sorry, I have to turn the page in my Bible. It's not turning right. Verse 36, the men who Moses sent to spy out the land, 10 of them, excuse me, 12 of them, of them, 10 of them are going to die immediately of a plague. Verse 36 and following. Verse 37, the men who brought up a bad report died by plague before the Lord right then. Judgment number three. Did God pardon? Yes, He pardoned. Did God give mercy? Yes, He gave mercy. If He wouldn't have, they would have all been wiped out right then. So what does Israel do? Oh, they repent and they get right before God and they live in the wilderness and everything's good and then God takes them in the land. Oh, no. Oh, no. They're too much like us to do that. They say, okay, God, we hate that we did that. We're going to go take the land. All right, so you were right. We can do it. Thank you. You got us right. We're going to take the land after God's already said, no, you're going to die in the wilderness. So they say, let's go up, verse 39 and following. Verse 40, they rose early in the next morning and went up the heights of the hill country, saying, here we are, we'll go up to the place the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses says, why are you now transgressing more? God told you you're going to stay in the wilderness to go back by the way of the Red Sea. You're going to be in the wilderness. Now you're going to put disobedience upon disobedience upon disobedience, and now you're going to get defeated. It's exactly what happens. They try to do it in their own strength, in their own power, and they die. Let me ask, as by way of application, let me ask you nine questions. I challenge you to write them down. I'm going to mention them. I say a word or two about them, but we're going to mention them and move because our time is about out. Question number one. Are you more like Caleb and Joshua, or are you more like the ten? Are you more like Caleb and Joshua, or are you more like the ten? In your personal walk with God, do you have eyes on what God has said and trusting God for what he said he would do. Or do you have eyes that look around and say. God I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do that. That is are you more. Are you more focused on your power. Or are you more focused on what God has promised. Question number two. We asked this one last week. Just want to bring it up again. And we'll move. Is the presence of God enough to sustain you in the wilderness? Is the presence of God enough to sustain you in the wilderness? Here in verse 39 and following, they go back up into the land and God says, no, I'm going here. And as you read, the the tabernacle goes back toward the Red Sea. The presence of God, that is the cloud, goes back toward the Red Sea and the people go a different way. Isn't that a picture of our life? It's a visible picture of what we often do. Is the presence of God enough to sustain you in the wilderness? Let me say it this way to you. I, before God, believe this is my heart, at least at this moment. And I would challenge you to call me on it when this is not my heart because we need each other in this. But before God, right now, I would rather fight cancer, lose my job, lose my home, lose my family, lose my very life, and know that I have the presence of God, than to have the best life according to the world's standards, and know that I don't have Him in my life. Is He enough? Number three, what do you fear? What do you fear? I think that's something I would want you to reflect on in light of this story. What are you afraid of that's keeping you from radical obedience to our God? Is it what someone else thinks? Is it what someone else would do? Is it what would be the consequence in your job? Is it what would be the consequences financially for you? The question then is, what do I fear and why don't I trust God more? What do you fear? Question number four. Are your hopes dependent on experiencing health, wealth, and prosperity? You can fill in one of those. Are your hopes dependent on experiencing health, wealth, and prosperity in the wilderness? are taking the inheritance that God has given you. Our forefathers would have said it like this. Our focus is on a land that is coming. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me to heavens. Open doors and I just can't feel at home in this world anymore. Are your hopes dependent on experiencing health, wealth, and prosperity in the wilderness or taking the inheritance that God has promised you? Number five, do you realize that God has chosen prayer as the tool through which He acts to accomplish His will? Do you realize that prayer is the tool through which God acts to accomplish His will? God comes down to Moses. He says, Moses, I'm going to kill this people. Moses says, God, please pardon them. God knew what He wanted to do with His people. But he acted on Moses' prayer. Church, we must be a praying people. Number six. I've already mentioned this one, so I'm going to hit it and go. Do you know that forgiveness does not mean the removal of all consequences? Do you know that forgiveness does not mean the removal of all consequences? Sometimes God pardons, but there's still going to be consequences. You're going to live with a thorn in the flesh or a limp the rest of your life because of sin in your life. That doesn't mean God doesn't forgive you. It means that He reminds you of His great forgiveness and His mercy not to take you even right then. Do you know that forgiveness does not mean the removal of all consequences? Three more. Number seven, what actions are you taking right now that will push others toward your faithfulness or faithlessness? What actions are you taking right now that will push others toward your faithfulness or your faithlessness? Look down at verse 33 in chapter 14 quickly. Verse 33, chapter 14 and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness. Sir, ma'am, did you know that your children will inherit consequences of your faithfulness or your faithlessness even right now? What actions are you taking right now that influence the faithfulness or the faithlessness of those around you? Number eight. Have you truly repented? I think what we learn in chapter 14 is that true repentance means total surrender to God. It doesn't mean, oh, I was sinful, and God, I know you're going that way now, but I'm going to go back to what I thought you were going to give me, what I thought you were going to promise us, where you had told me, I'm going to do it, and God says, no, I want you to go this way. Total re- repentance means total surrender of my will to God's will. Have you truly repented of sin, self, and your old life. True repentance is a total surrender of your will and agenda to God's. And then finally, will you trust God to bring you into your inheritance? That is heaven. Will you trust God to bring you into your inheritance? Will you trust Him enough to do His will In the in-between time. You see that's what this text is really all about. God says I'm giving you the land. God says to you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. God says I'm going to take you into it. I'll come back and get you. But in the between time. You make disciples. It's not going to be easy. You may not have health. You may not have wealth. As a matter of fact, I might put you in prison so that you can share the gospel with somebody particularly. I might take your help so that you can be a witness to me of what suffering looks like in this world. I might do a hundred things so that I could use you to make disciples in the in-between time. Will you trust me because I'm taking you somewhere? Will you trust God enough to bring you to your inheritance? Will you trust Him enough to obey His will in the between times? In other words, we risk everything to make disciples. This is our call in the Between Time Church. Risk everything for the cause of Christ. To do any less is for us to be just like these people. To get a taste. To see the fruit. To see the land. To see glory. You see, we saw it more than they did because we've seen Christ. We've seen our King. We know what He said about our land. We've seen that the dead are raised and those who are leprous are healed. Those who are blind see. We know what His kingdom is going to be like. And yet, we are just like these people. And we don't keep our focus where He's taking us. We would rather live faithlessly here. Church, God is taking you to a land of abundance. And a kingdom that will be forever. Trust Him. And do His will. If He can raise His own son from the dead. He can sustain you. In the wilderness. Trust Him.